welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Podcast. This publication, my website, and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by interpreting the science and translating it into easy-to-understand lessons. If you enjoy the podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performance to the next level. And at the end of this episode, I'll spend a couple of minutes explaining that in more detail. For now, though, it's time for something a little different. In the run of two outlaw events, I normally present webinars to the entered athletes to outline the best training approach for their particular event. Instead, we're going to try this as a podcast. So I'm joined by Outlaw Ambassador Daniel Ward. Dan will be asking me the questions some based on his curiosity around his own training for the events and others on behalf of potential outlaws who have submitted their questions via social media. And by the way, the advice is still relevant even if you're doing a non-outlaw long-distance triathlon. So, buckle up and get ready to take your training to the next level. Here's Dan. Hello, Daniel Ward. Welcome to the show. An outlaw ambassador for 2023. So pleased you could be here. Good evening, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, uh, they haven't sacked me just yet. I don't think. No, I should hope not. I think you uh, you've got a big following. You might have more demonstrators protesting about your sacking than Donald Trump in New York. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> um, yes, it's a, it's a new thing, isn't it? Having ambassadors. It's something we trialed last year, and I know they've they've taken a slightly different tack this year. So um, maybe let's let's talk about you a bit first, Dan. Uh, we can explain why you're why you're on this podcast with me. But tell me about your role as um, an ambassador and how that all came about. Yeah. Uh, firstly, I think I'm on this podcast because I was probably one of the people who was available. So uh, thanks to my uh, free diary. Um, Outlaw have been a big part of my triathlon journey. So uh, I'll spare you the details. But from 2016 onwards, I've been doing Outlaw events. And so that formed you know, a large part of my triathlon journey. So over the last few years, I've uh, started and grown a YouTube channel. And that aligns well with Outlaw. I make videos from events and uh, videos on the course because I'm lucky to live near, near Nottingham so I can get out on the course and training and stuff. And I guess we started, uh, Outlaw and I started more formally working together about three years ago. And that was just a case of, I think they wanted to keep a handle on me so I didn't uh, inadvertently do a race briefing on a video and people think they were doing that. But uh, yeah, we just sort of, you know, obviously met at the events, spoke about what I was doing, what they were doing, and just figured out a way in which I could support them and they could support me. Mm-hmm. You've developed that to then help more people, as you say, over the last couple of years. And the um, you know Team Outlaw has a few different ways in supporting athletes. Some of them are, uh, you know, people who post loads on the internet, influencers, if you want to call them. Some of them are future pros. And there's a couple of other categories as well, just interesting and cool people who they want to want to support. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might be in a future, future pro category. I might be 31, but, uh, you know, never say never. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's just it's interesting to see a, few, a group of people come together. Um, obviously, I love the Outlaw events, so it's good just to, to support those as well. So, yeah, we look forward to meeting some members of the team. I've, I've only met one of them so far, Louis Dunn, and I'm hoping to meet the rest of them at the events this year. Now you've got an interesting backstory because before 2016, you were probably the complete opposite of what most people might expect as a triathlete, weren't you? 
Yeah, I think like many triathletes, I've not been an athlete all my life. I don't know if I'm an athlete now, to be honest. Uh, I wasn't very sporty at all. I was sporty throughout my teenage years and then, I don't know, found alcohol and other things. And um, my life was more leisurely than it is now. And then in 2013, started running. And then, like many people, sick of getting running injuries. So start swimming and start uh, riding a bike. Did a yeah. super sprint try and then built up the distances. And then my, my triathlon journey sort of started. Yeah, so um, uh, I look back on those days and I think, oh, that was that was when it was hard. Like now it's easy because getting started is the hardest bit. And what, what was it got you started into running then? Because running's quite running is quite hard on the body, isn't it? You know, mm. and um, there are more gentle things that you can do if you were just starting out on your fitness journey and then then sort of transitioning to running it a bit later. There are two key drivers. Firstly, was like my internal driver of I put on a lot of weight and I I didn't just want to lose it. Like I needed to lose it. Like it was like my general health was suffering, skin, sleep, uh, even mm-hmm. simple things like, you know, clothes and how you feel and so on. Mm-hmm. And then I had a local, I had a local running club to me that was Newark Striders. Okay. And they did, a, they did a couch to 5K program. And that was absolutely pivotal in me getting me getting active. The group of people there, the coaches and the other people on that same journey that I was on. And there are still people to this day who I keep in touch with who are in that couch to 5K group. Some of them are triathletes, some of them are runners, some of them do other sports now. Uh, and if it wasn't for those two things, I think oh, I wouldn't be where I, was, where I am today. Are you willing to share how much weight you lost or had to lose? Yeah, I mean, my weight's you know, fluctuated over the last couple of years, but I'm sitting at around seven stone down. Seven stone so, down. Yeah, is that, yeah. I was hundred. I was one hundred and twenty-seven kilos at my peak. Peak opposite of peak, and I've been down at eighty. And I'm currently in the high eighties. Wow. I feel massive, like I've got to a point it? where I'm. Yeah, I feel like I've got to a point where I'm. You know, I'm happy and healthy. I'm by no means a racing snake, but I'm able to manage it. I understand food a bit more now, and, and so on. That's that's really interesting. That, that's probably another podcast because I'm I'm just reading mm. a book called Why We Eat Too Much. I don't know if you've read that. It's by a doctor who does a lot of gas gastric band surgery and he was getting a lot of people that that felt like they were just at the wit's end in terms of losing weight they'd lost they tried every single diet out there but he has this idea that there's a thing called the set point so your body has a a, a set figure and if you go on a drastic calorie controlled a calorie restricted diet you will lose weight because it's, it's restrictive but but the, the body wants to get back to that set weight and so if you do it quickly as soon as you feel like you've lost the weight as um even if you've got the strongest willpower in the world, the body's almost forcing you to eat more, eat more to get back to that set point because it's trying to protect itself against what it thinks is a future famine. And this guy's philosophy, which I feel like as I'm about three quarters of the way through the book, seems like a fairly sensible one, is that most diets don't actually work and that what you need to do is just eat real food, get away from all the ultra-processed stuff, do some exercise and be very, very patient. and it sounds like that's you. You've changed your lifestyle, you've changed your habits and incorporated yeah. some very new and healthy habits. Yeah, but exactly as you say, it is a process and it takes time. When I say things like that, oh, I was this way and now I'm this way, it sounds like it happened overnight. That was a <clears> multi-year <throat> process. And along mm. that journey, there are weeks and months where I gain weight and then lose it again, gain weight and lose it again. And you, you go on this journey, don't you? So um, it's certainly not a, an overnight process. But I think for it, to, exactly as you say, for it to be sustainable, it has to be slower because if you just have that snap i'm going to try and drop loads of weight you then for whatever reason will just put it back on through either not being as strict with yourself or because of other reasons and of course now you're doing all this training for triathlon trying to go on a calorie controlled diet will be counterproductive wouldn't it because you also need to fuel that training so you're sort of Mm -hmm. trying to 
we're almost burning a candle at both ends and it it probably both yeah. both of them are going to end in failure either you're not going to be able to do the training or you're just going to end up binging on other less healthy stuff yeah you've um you, we're both trying to fuel for training and racing aren't you whilst also sometimes trying to lose weight and this year or six months ago i enlisted professional help and that has been that's been transformational in right. understanding how and when to fuel and even not on not on training days, even just on normal days as well. So uh, th- mm. that that helps. I think you need to accept what you don't know. Like I wasn't in great shape, so therefore I, there's clearly something that I don't know. Well, that, that's another interesting point, isn't it? That you talk about there is you know not just in not just about fueling for training, but on the days when you're not training, I get a lot of questions, and we're gonna we're gonna go through and cover a few later on. But I get a lot of questions from folks saying. What do, what do I need? I'm really concerned about what I should consume on race day. And this might be sometime, you know, in November. So we've still got seven or eight months to go until the race. And I'm thinking, oh, hold on a minute. There's, uh, you know, there's another 200 days before the event where you need to think about what you're eating, not just on race day. And um, I, I, I do think that sometimes there's a tendency when you're doing a lot of training and training for an outlaw full event is a lot of training. You know, I know we normalized eight to 10 hours a week as being a low level, but it's a lot compared to other sports. And um, you can't, the, the, the phrase that you can't outrun a bad diet is, is incredibly true. Doesn't matter how old you are, um, it will catch up with you eventually. Absolutely, it will. Okay. So, um, well, it's going to be great to see you. I don't think we've ever actually met personally, have we? Um, I, in passing, uh, high five, I've, giving you a, a shout yeah. out as a namesake, but that's about all. I've shuffled past you many a time, Simon, as you've been on the commentary booth. And also, I wanted to say thank you very much because I, I think it was four or five years ago, my other half, Liz and I, did an Outlaw Half as a relay. And I actually, I mean, it's, it sounds like a terrible present, but I think I actually bought it as a birthday present. And uh, I sent you a message and asked you to, if you would kindly, because we you, we recognise you from the Outlaw events, if you'd do like a video message and just say something along those lines. And you did, and she loved it, and that really motivated her towards. Oh, I remember her. now. Yeah, you asked me. That's right. Um, you asked me to send her a little, yeah. a little video message telling yes. her that you'd bought her that as a present, didn't you? Yes. So thank you very much for doing that. And I, <laughs> oh, you're what we're doing today goes some way towards repaying you uh, for that comes. Well, I, I did suggest to my to my other commentary colleagues that we could offer a little service where we do personalised messages, like celebrity messages to people, you know, as a as a fun thing or a birthday wish or a, you know whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I don't think we'll be earning big fees from that, but you never know. Some people might like it. Yeah. You are as, an as outlaw, it, as the outlaw team tell me. Kids will watch anything when I talk about any sort of numbers on views or anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll be yeah. doing. Available for birthday yeah. parties and uh, exactly. christening. Okay, so the, the other thing, uh, as we said, I, I like to do webinars, and so normally at this time of year, I'd be doing a webinar talking about sort of training that folks should be doing in the lead up to the races. And, and we are going to talk mostly about the outlaw full, but we will talk about preparing for outlaw half and um, Holcomb and outlaw X at the end of summer. And so all the, the, there's some slight differences around the courses, but there's a lot of similarities in terms of the training, but the outlaw full is the one that um, most people have challenges over because it just seems to require so much more time and, Obviously, it's a massive day out, and if it is your first time at the event, we're looking forward to seeing you. But um, we're going to try and help sort of relax you and put to bed some of that overwhelm that you might be feeling. So um, you're going to be the questioner, and Dan, you're going to, um, as as a curious and and um, keen to learn person, you're 
um, I'm handing over the uh, interviewing or the, the questioning to you. And then I'm going to try and do, instead of doing my webinar, I'm going to try and provide the information. And so you're going to, probably some of these questions are going to be about your training and that's absolutely fine. And there'll be a lot of people who pick up information that we talk about that will apply to them as well. So great. off you go, Dan. You're in charge. I was, I was hoping this was going to be a free coaching consultation. That's great. Well, you can see um, it. If you want to see it as a free coaching <laughs> consultation, I am I am the official outlaw coach, so that's fine. You know, everybody's going to get a free coaching session of some sort tonight. Absolutely. So I've been doing outlaw events a few years. I've done outlaw full twice, just to give people an idea of where I'm coming from. Uh, both times to complete rather than to compete over my triathlon journey. I think I've progressed towards the, I don't know, the upper median of an age group. I've never really won in my age groups, but I suppose I think more now about competing than just completing. However, to finish first, first you've got to finish. So thank you to everybody who submitted all these questions. I'm going to try and interpret them uh, and make them as useful for as many people as possible. But of course, it can't always be as specific to you in your situation. So hopefully you all get, get something from this. We've got a few general questions and then we've got some swim, bike and run specific as well as nutrition and race day itself. So Simon, and I think I'm part of the problem of where this question comes from. All we see online is how much training people are doing. They're doing massive bike rides and runs and swims and all of this. How much training should I be doing? Because it looks like I'm not doing enough. So that that is that is actually part of the problem, Daniel. It's it's social media. It's you know it's blog posts. It's all the sort of um, hero type stuff that people post on Instagram and and Strava. Uh, I always ask folks, how much time can you actually dedicate to training for this particular event? So obviously, I know you're a busy man, and I know that you have work. You, you've got your girlfriend, or is she a wife now? Oh, touchy subject. Okay, you've got your <laughs> other no half. jewelry involved just yet. You've got your other half, um, your family as well, and friends. So you, you know, you seem like a sociable person. So you want to maintain those friendships. Um, no, nobody's very happy if they have a great triathlon result, but the, none of the friends want to know about it. So you have to keep those. And of course, then you have to do all the other stuff that helps you recover from the training. So when you total up all those things that are like the big rocks in the in the bottle that can't be can't be negotiated over um you're left with a certain amount of of time spare and then also there's there's emergencies you know like someday you might have to go and see your, your parents or your grandparents if they're not very well or you might have to um you know you might be ill yourself or you might have to work on a project which takes a bit more time or you know do something with you with your other half so you have to leave a bit of spare time for emergencies and then it's traveling to and from and work and all that so that eats into your time as well so then you're left with a certain amount of training that you could probably do and accomplish and then and then there's the sort of like that that's probably a bandwidth and at one end it's like the minimum amount you want to do and the other end it's the maximum amount if you have a really good week and then right in the middle is probably the sweet spot of what you can manage on a regular basis and that's going to be different for everybody so I find that the people who do outlaw events or other outlaw different uh, distance events by a different name um, I find that those folks who do really well have what I call quiet lives, that they have a job that's really well sorted, that doesn't require, it's not very stressful. They perhaps work from home or they don't they don't have to travel very far. Maybe the kids have left home or they don't have any kids and they're just focused on the triathlon. And then you've got the other people who've got really busy lives who have lots going on and so they don't have as much time to share, to spare. And so it's different for everybody. So if 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 anybody is looking at social media and seeing, 
person X doing so many hours of training a week, the first question you want to ask yourself is what else do they do in their life? What's their life like? Now, that might be all they do. They might have just won the lottery or sold their business and don't have to work. Um, and and also, you know, there's a there's a resilience. Some people can cope with lots of training. Some people can't. It depends on your training history, you know, how much you've built up to. It's it, it's not very clever to go straight into doing 15 hours a week. If, you know, if you'd done this in 2013 when you just started out on your couch to 5K, you'd have probably been injured. So it's, it's very much finding the sweet spot. If you use something like Strava or training peaks i find that as a coach the best way for me to find out what somebody might want to start at is to look at what they've been doing historically in the last few months because that's a really good that's a really good way of telling if if they've been averaging six hours a week there's probably a good reason for that most triathletes aren't lazy they're motivated and so for that person i'd be starting them on six hours a week and see what happens if somebody's been historically doing 10 or 15 hours a week then i'd probably start on there but but it's different for everybody so Social media is very destructive. Um, so find out for yourself. And that you'll hear a lot of all the best coaches, I'm not saying that's me, but all the world's leading experts in running, strength training, CrossFit, whatever, will nearly always say you have to find what works for you. Yeah, that's right. It's a long, you... a long answer, but yeah, ignore, ignore social media. Yeah, and I think as well, everybody only posts the good stuff and the days that mm-hmm. they are having a great week of training. So just bear <laughs> yeah. that in mind. Well, I, I mean, that, and that's, that's interesting, Daniel, because people don't post when they're injured and they can't do any, or when they, you know, when they're woken up one morning and they can't be asked to do any training. And it's like, I want to just have a duvet day or they've just been out and done a 20 minute run. Cause that's all the time. Nobody posts that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. There are a few questions about general training as well, Simon, leading up, leading up to yeah, the force. Yeah. People, yeah. And that, one, that, that one stemmed from, how am I going to fit all this training in? And there's a couple more specific. So people are asking things like, um, you know, do I need a coach? Can I do strength training? Some people enjoy other things such as CrossFit mm. or the, like the gym class or something. Um, is mm. zone two training really that good because it feels too easy? It feels like it should be harder. So could you perhaps talk a little bit about what, training for a full distance triathlon should feel like should all the training be easy uh, should i be doing loads of strength training as well mm. or is it yeah. just as simple as doing swim bike and run well i'm going to go back to your first question there do i need a coach so let's say you're in the position of somebody who might have downloaded i see a lot of people talking on on various forums about the don fink programs which you know don fink's a great coach and he's written a good very popular book and his stru- programs are very well structured and they're as good as any other program that's out there um, but when you when you buy a book or you download a plan, and I have plans to download as well, but when you download a plan, you get just the plan. Now, you've got questions for me and so have lots of other people. And I see lots of people who are using the Think plan saying, well, I don't agree with this, or he's telling me I need to do that, or I don't see the point of doing that. So who are they going to turn to? If, you, if you've got a coach, one would hope that you've built up a level of trust with your coach that you would listen to what they're going to say and take that as your main priority of things to action um if you don't have a coach then you you back to that sort of social media instagram sort of what have other people done um the other thing about a coach is a coach will hold you accountable now it shouldn't be a sort of a bullying have you done that stuff today dan or else it's more like how did you get on today dan okay um, what, what was the reason for that? You know, um, you you didn't manage to get that run done today because um, 
because you forgot to take your running shoes to work so you could go after um, at lunchtime, you know, um, what have you learned from that? You know, so ca- coaches ask awkward questions, but it, but you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel intimidating. Um, they help you to provide structure. If you've got a coach with experience and somebody who's sort of been through the sort of coaching qualification process and has got a good understanding of not just about physiology, but about how to chat with people and understanding their backstory as well. The fact that they do have, might have a lot going on. Um, then a coach can help you to work around problems as well. Like, oh, I've got to go away for two weeks and I can't take my bike with me. What am I going to do? Because the outlaw's in a month. Um, so most coaches will help you to solve problems as well. And, and they're sounding boards. And if you go to a good coach, most of them have got a, a notebook full of contacts so I pride myself personally on that if you said to me, Simon Wright, I need to see a back specialist because I've got this problem. I can get I with two, with two emails or phone calls, I can put you in front of the right person because I've got personal contacts. If you want to see a nutritionist because you've got a specialised you know, eating disorder, I could probably find you the right person within one phone call. So most good coaches will also have that big, big list of contacts. In terms of those other things you asked me about, yeah, CrossFit. I mean, I, I love strength training. It's it's the first thing I did when I started out as a professional sports coach, working with elite athletes as their strength coach. I spent years doing that myself. I, I think CrossFit's great. Um, the issues I have with CrossFit is that the range of the coaches there are, are sometimes they're not always high quality. So, you know, and workouts of the day can be very, very fatiguing and they're quite highly anaerobic. So they generate a lot of lactic acid. So if you're doing an interval session on the Zwift or at the at the track, the running track, and you try, so that's two hard sessions a week. And then you're trying to do a CrossFit workout, you might find yourself burning out. So yes, definitely keep some strength training in, maybe back off on the CrossFit stuff uh, a little bit until your race is done. Um, zone two training is it's not a new thing. You know, if, if 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 any of the listeners want to look in, look at Arthur Lydiard and some of the coaches from the 1950s and 60s, he was having his athletes do high volume with mostly easy training and a, and a sprinkling of high intensity way back then. And these guys were winning Olympic gold medals at, at middle distance. It, it, it has made a bit of a comeback. Stephen Siler was the one who, who really sort of analysed and was the first person to look at, well, what makes pro an elite endurance athlete so successful. Let's look at their training diaries. And then he noticed that there was huge percentages of work done in this sort of fairly moderate zone and, and a small sprinkling of high intensity. And then once the other physiologists started to examine it, they look at, well, in terms of physiology, what happens when you train at an easy level? Well, you develop lots and lots of mitochondria and these are where the energy is produced to enable you to, to do your stuff on race day. High intensity training feels like you're working hard and, and you can get fit quite quickly, but it will plateau off at a certain time. It also doesn't come without a bit of risk. You know, you, if you're running hard on the track, you're more likely to get an injury there. And if you do too much of it, your body won't be able to recover. Um, so most of the elite endurance athletes in the world spend about 80% of their training time doing zone two work because it builds a huge engine. And then the interval work is like, well, we've got all these little motors that we're developing. The high-intensity work like polishes the motors and makes them really efficient so that they can use all the stuff you developed to the, to the best. Um, and if you're training for an outlaw event, and you know if you've done one before, go back and have a look at your 
go back to look and have it. Have a look at your swimming pace. It won't be at your critical swim speed. It'll probably be ten seconds per hundred meters slower than that. Which actually, if you did a hundred meters in a pool, would feel really easy. Your bike pace or intensity or power will probably be about sixty for most people sixty five to seventy percent of FTP. Which, if you went out and rode on its own, would feel like a very very steady ride. And running, you know. Most people will tell me that they can't run at a pace. You know, it's, it feels too easy. And then when I look at their race data, actually, lo and behold, their race pace in a full distance event is much slower than that. Um, so, yes, um, zone two training is really, really important. And it's very, in a lot of times, and for a lot of people, it's very, very close to their race pace. And the, and this is an important thing, Daniel, is that zone two training is not corrosive on the body in the same way that zone three and zone four is. So you can recover very quickly and you can do it again the next day and the next day without putting a stress on your immune system. So then you're less likely to break down or get ill. So it might feel boring, but the world's best are good at getting bored and training. Yeah, you've got to put some faith in it, haven't you? I think I heard um, it was either, it was one of the Norwegians, Gustav or Christian Brummerfeld, saying mm-hmm. something about, uh, you seem to have broken through in the last year or two. Like, what happened? They said, well, five years ago, I was doing, you know, 30 hours a week of endurance training. And then four years ago, I, I still was. Three years ago, I still was. Two years ago, I still was. And I still am now. And I'm now just reaping those benefits of mm-hmm. that time. So uh, I know well, not everybody wants to hear it's going to be five years, but you've got to put some faith in it. Well, uh, you know, um, Alistair Brownlee was once asked, you know, how it, uh, about his success in the Olympics and how he suddenly came to that dominant period just before the Beijing Olympics and then sort of followed it through 2009, 2010. But I know that Alistair had been doing that sort of training since the early 2000s. And, and you know, he said it's taken me, uh, and it's used by many other athletes as well, but it's taken me 10 years to be an overnight success. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's the depth of training, you know, Things like the Outlaw Full are long events. And when you train for long events, it takes a long time to get the fitness. You, you can't really do it justice over six months. Okay. Um, a bit about the course specifics then. So people are asking, yeah. you know, can I can I go on the course? Can I train on it? How do I get there? How, sorry, how do I get mm. there? <laughs> you probably need to drive a car. Uh, how do I go about knowing which way to go? What's the course like? Yeah. How can people prepare themselves for the course? I know there are some people who, put course preview videos up on the internet but again that's only a few minutes of what is mm. quite a long way out isn't it yeah well um at all of the outlaw triathlon venues it's it's impossible to swim at the venue um before the weekend um at, at holcomb and outlaw x um these are private places and so you can't go onto the course they're like private private estates for that reason, uh, you are unable to um, to run on some of the courses. Uh, I think uh, uh, actually at Holcomb, there's a park run every weekend. So if you were in the, in the Norwich, you know the Norfolk area, you can go over there and do a park run. Um, you can't run on the you can't run around the um, Thorsby Park where the Outlaw X takes place. Um, you can. You can ride sections of all, or you can ride parts of all of those courses. You know, uh, Outlaw Half and Outlaw Full, you can ride on the course, but there's a section on the A52, which you probably don't want to do because that's probably dangerous. Um, 
Outlaw X, yes, you can ride around there, but just just try and avoid busy times because it's not far off the A1. Um, Outlaw Holcombe's beautiful around there. If you go away for the weekend and go to Norfolk, have you been to Norfolk? Yeah, I used to live in Norfolk a few years ago. So right, um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's lovely out there riding, isn't it? And it's pretty quiet. Mm. So uh, yes, um, so you can go on to the course. I mean, there's probably ride with GPS profiles and um, profiles on Strava, which would give you an idea. I would say that um, Outlaw Half and Outlaw Full are, are pretty flat, apart from Oxton Bank, which you go up once in both of those, I think. Um, yeah. Outlaw X is, is very similar, um, North Nottinghamshire, so reasonably reasonably flat. Um, and the one that surprises everybody is Holcomb, because out in Norfolk, you think, ah, oh, it's as flat as a pancake out there. And then everybody gets caught out because that's probably the hilliest of our races now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And um, so the bike ride, yes. The swim, no. Um, you can definitely run around home Pierpont and out by the river. So if you're out low, full and half, yes. Um, so some of them, not all of them. Yeah. I think it's it's worthwhile wrecking some of the bike. Um, it probably isn't worthwhile wrecking the run, I don't think, because... If you're running, it's pretty similar on pretty similar terrain. What I tend to do for the full is I might drive out to either the south or the north loop. So for mm. those that don't yeah. know, the outlaw full is made up of a south and a north loop and the bits in between. So you ride out from here, home pay point across Nottingham. I wouldn't ride that bit during the day because that's middle of Nottingham. Yeah. It's fine on race day, all the signage and cones and everything else. And then the south loop is lovely. I think it's about 25 miles in total. You do that twice on the day, so it's well worth wrecking. And the North Loop is a similar size and you can drive in between them. But again, that, that bit in between can get busy at times, but it's just like any other any other open road. I know you should be able to ride anywhere at any time, but um, if I was to pick one or the other, I'd definitely reckon the South Loop is a bit more technical, but the North Loop is where the only major hill is. And when I say major, it's probably a three to five minute climb for most people and it doesn't get any steeper than eight or 9%. So it is a hill, but you should be okay. I think it's also worth pointing out there, Dan, that, that if you were going to wreck them, it'll give you the opportunity to see what the general prevailing winds are. You know, whilst um, the outlaw half and full courses are flat, it can it, it can be exposed to wind at times, and sometimes that'll be in your face, and sometimes that'll be in your favour. Um, but it might also, if you have questions about whether you're riding deep, want to ride deep rim wheels or a, a disc wheel, it might help you to make that decision as well. Um, you, you mentioned about how well I know where to go on race day. The outlaw events are always really well signposted, and um, you know even things like potholes they go around the whole course with the orange paint spray, the outlaw orange, and spray around them all. So if you if you're paying attention when you're riding along, you'll see them in in good time, and you will be able to avoid them. Um, Please don't blame the organisers for the potholes. They're not responsible for the state of the roads in any part of the country, and I know that when you come back into out into home Pierpont, um, there's always questions and comments about the last mile coming in round past the house. But that is really the best way to come in. And you know, yes, if you go flying at those speed bumps and dodging those potholes, you might damage your wheels and you might lose your nutrition and your water bottle. But it's the same for everybody. And and actually, in in that last mile, you're probably not going to lose much time. And you might be better off just putting into a low gear and pedaling through nicely and com- composing your thoughts and getting ready to go on the run rather than ch- charging in. Yeah, absolutely. At, at the half, I'm a bit like, oh, this is really slowing me down. But on the full, the last time I did it, it was not slowing me down at all. I'd slowed down <laughs> long before then. So yeah, like, yeah. 
yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, we're going to talk swimming now, Simon. My favourite subject. I think I said to you earlier, <laughs> my specialist subjects are swimming and fashion. Um, yeah. Now, this, are you, are you, is there comment- a slight... Is there some irony in there, or is swimming really your favourite? <laughs> no, it isn't my favourite. Not very good, <laughs> but I tell I tell people I am. So, <laughs> well, you've you've got around three point eight k on the uh, outlaw course, so you can't be that bad. I think it was two laps the year I did it, and I had a break in in between. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. There's a and these comments aren't just from me. There's a lot of people either for one reason or another not able to or not wanting to swim a lot. So people are saying. I can only get to the pool once or twice a week. Uh, how much swimming do I need to do as a minimum to get around mm. that? How mm. do I know I'm going to be fit enough to get around the cutoff? I think there's quite a lot of people who, you know, the distance is intimidating. It is 3.8K in open water, so it is a long way. I don't know why I joke then about, oh, you know, it takes me I'm, I'm not very good at swimming. It is a consideration because it the longer you're in there, the more tired you're going to be. So could you give us a bit of information about what you would advise is a like a maybe a minimum level and I know you take into account everything you said earlier about your specific life situations but if somebody wants to know that they can mm-hmm. get around 3.8k are there any tests or measures or uh, sessions or things they can do to you know to guarantee that yeah that, that's really good question Dan because I, I think you know whilst it is the smallest percentage and chunk of the event um firstly you've got to get you know, if, if like most people, swimming isn't your favourite or the one you feel you're not good at, then you've still got to get through that bit in order to be able to get onto things that you do enjoy. And I've I've seen some really sad cases of people whose five grand time trial bikes sitting in transition waiting for them whilst they get the the um you know the um I'm sorry but you've missed the cut off handshake from from Adam or uh, um or one of the other daft. So um it it is important to swim regularly. Uh, I would, and I wrote a post about this the other day, is that sometimes I feel that if you swim more frequently, um, you get a better feel for the water. So I, I know folks will say, well, if I haven't got the planned hour to do something, and it's not worth it, but even half an hour um, in the pool, you know, on your way to work is worth it. And I, that's something I practice regularly, and I just get up to the local pool, do uh, a thousand metres of drills and kicking, and it, it might take me half an hour, but um, I, I do feel like I, I I get keep my feel for the water better. Okay. It is a long way swimming 3.8k, and the cutoff for the full is two hours and fifteen minutes plus a little bit of extra to get you to, um, or two hours and fifty minutes to get you to the uh, um, to the exit of T1. But I think it's important that you try at least once to swim that distance. Now it's not it's not critical you swim front crawl. You can introduce breaststroke, and so if you have trouble breathing or you get you get tired by swimming or front crawl. It's it's perfectly acceptable to include a little bit of breaststroke to give you that breather, keep your head up, and then do your front crawl again. But I think it's important that for your confidence that you know that you can swim the distance and that you can do it in um, in the time. So I think it's so you want to be building up to that. Um, if if it helps to do a long swim event, there's plenty of open water swim events now. If it helps to do something like the Great North Swim um, before. You know, just to get a swim event and be in open water and be with other people, then that would be a real confidence boost as well. Um, yeah. So yes, I think I think swimming. If if you don't have much time, then I think that um, each week, then I think it's important to be efficient with your swimming, and so that might be where you want to employ a coach to help you get the most out of the swimming you can do, and be efficient so you're not 
you're not using too much energy. Um, so until you've actually either swum the distance until race day, it's impossible to know whether you're going to make the cutoff. Yeah, I swim with some people who will only come to the, the our group session once a week, and you can yeah. tell that they perhaps don't make much improvements. Annoyingly, they still swim better than I do. But I try and talk to them, and you say, if you swim once a week, well, if you swim twice a week, you're doing you're doing a hundred percent extra training. If your sessions are the same, mm. you're doubling your swim training. You mm-hmm. might not see double the return, but you're going to see a significant increase based on based on being once. So I think the frequency thing there is important. But like you say, don't get intimidated by it. If you say, right, I'm going to go to one club session a week or one uh, session where I'm going to swim two or three K, and then I'm just going to go one other day and I'm going to do a thousand meters. And I don't care what it is made up of, whether it's drills, whether it's kick, whether it's just swimming steady, I'm going to get another swim in and build on it from there. That, that could be a good mm. stuff. I tell you, there is one thing um, that, that I've used with some folks occasionally is to have every maybe every three to four weeks is to have a big swim week where you cut all your other training right down just to a maintenance level and but you try and go to the pool four or five times and get a lot of mileage in this this minimal risk of injury unless you unless your technique's really off um you know maybe you, you might get a little tight in the shoulders or the back but getting all of that training in in the pool in one week will accelerate your feel for the water and then if you can maintain that then until the next time with a couple of short swims a week um you know that that's something that um that folks could try if they can't commit to swimming a lot every week mm-hmm. yeah it's useful and then the other swimming specific things are so outlaw fall is at the end of july which i'm crossing some fingers side but it's going to be brilliant weather uh there's going to be a breath of wind it'll be low 20s it'll be fabulous but that means that for the couple of months beforehand, we're going to have brilliant weather as well. So people should be able to get some open water swim training in. So there's a couple of questions about people are saying, I don't like swimming in open water. Now, I think yeah. I'll take from that people perhaps worry about it. It's strange. You can't see. Mm-hmm. It's, there's mud and there's weeds and there's fish and trolleys and a Ford Capri I saw pulled out the lake one year <laughs> at home, Pierpoint. Um, <laughs> so how important is swimming in the open water before the event? And is it just as simple as going and doing some swimming in open water or is there anything more specific you you advise people to do ahead of the outlaw pool? Well, first look, take a look at this photograph behind me. This is race morning at the outlaw. You can just see the, uh, it's from the far end of the lake. Uh, actually, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is at um, Home Pierpont. But this is what it normally looks like on race day. It's calm, flat water, beautiful skies. You know, we've we've got some fantastic starts to outlaw races. And so um, you're right, that's exactly what it will be like. And uh, one thing we don't ever talk about is how warm the water is. We never give a temperature out. We always just say, oh, it's lovely or nippy or yeah. oh, it's toasty. Yeah, so please don't ask what the temperature is going to be like because you'll either get a sarcastic answer or not. Um, yeah, open water swimming, yes. I know there are folks who like to do cold water swimming. I wonder even at this time of year whether they're actually swimming or just flapping about because they're cold. Um, I, do, I do know some hardy folks that, that do go throughout the year and, and that's great for those people, but they're in the minority and they, they're also the sort of people who love open water swimming. Um, first thing I would say is you'd, you, all outlaw swims are wetsuit. So you don't what you don't need to worry about is even if we have a heat wave, you, you won't be asked to swim without a wetsuit. So I know that puts a lot of people's um, minds at rest. I, I fully understand that whole um, anxiety that's caused by the thought of of swimming in open water. You can't see the bottom. It's not as warm. There isn't a wall to touch or to grab hold of. But 
unfortunately, it's the reality of the event you've entered for is that you are going to be swimming in open water. And the best the best way to overcome those anxieties is to expose yourself to those fears gradually. So you, you could be like some people just go, right, I'm just going to throw myself in here and it'll work itself out. Or you you very definitely want to go open water swim with other people because you know, you know, if you got into if you did get into difficulties, you definitely don't want to be doing it on your own. And if you can go to somewhere where it's organized and perhaps there's a coach there that can help you talk you through those or other people, um, you definitely won't be the only one who's had that anxiety. Um and and you just you just get into the water and just you know get 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 out of your depth, literally, you know, where your feet can't touch the bottom and just float around. And just get comfortable with it. Calm, do, do some lie on your back with your wetsuit on so you float. Do some breathing exercise that brings your heart rate round down. If you feel like putting your head underwater, do that. Um, swim with some other people so that there's some shared anxiety there, and you can all talk about your your, your fears and worries. And then over coming weeks, just um, gradually expose yourself to a little bit more of that anxiety a little bit more until you will you know you're able to put your head underwater and you can swim a bit further and feel confident and and it's you know one of the things that also freaks people out particularly at um outlaw full events is that it's a mass start but we do have different pens so the fastest run um, swimmers are right on the left and the slower swimmers are on the right but you can also go at the back of that group so you can, you don't have to go in and start with the melee you can walk yourself in a minute behind and so you've got clear water to swim in but but getting used to swimming amongst other people and understanding that if you do get clipped on the head it's not because out of spite and somebody doesn't like you it's it's just that that person's trying to swim and you're close to them and, and there's going to be some physical contact um like like with tapping you on your feet you know I, i've done that myself where i've got very angry with somebody who kept tapping me on my feet and just so happened that i was in their way um so Anxiety is real. Um, expose yourself to that cold dark water as soon as possible with somebody who can help you and who's used to working through swimmers and, and just do it regularly until it becomes comfortable for you. I wouldn't say you'll ever be, you know, relax. You, you might never be relaxing it, but at least it's comfortable for you because that is, you know, what you're going to have to face on race day. Um, so yeah. hopefully that helps. There's a couple of things I picked up through through the years as well. If you think about when mm. you're swimming in open water, generally, unless you're swimming in somewhere more tropical than home people, you can't see when you're looking in the water. So therefore, in the mm. pool, just close your eyes when your head's under. Maybe don't do it in a busy public lane when it's quieter. <laughs> so when you've got your head underwater, just close your eyes. And when you breathe, open. And when you you know look up and sight and open them. And just try and get used to that sensation of not being yeah. able to see and see if you're still swimming in a vaguely straight line. Uh, the other thing I do, which I think helps more with anxiety than anything else, but it's about that cold water shock. Even when it is the middle of July and the water is relatively warm, you still have that that breathless you know, first few uh-huh. seconds when you jump in the water. And that can be re- really difficult to get over, especially if you're spiking your heart rate, if you're starting fast and so on. So I always have a bottle of water in my, uh, in my bag in transition. And when I put my wetsuit on, I'll just tip that down my, down my wetsuit and you'll get that same feeling. It will feel like it doesn't have to be chilled or anything. You'll still get that. But then that small layer of water is in your wetsuit already. You're still going to feel it when you jump in the in, in the water. But I, I feel like that helps and that you've already had that mental and physical shock. So when you actually start the swim for real, 
it's not as bad. Now, with mass starts, you get time to you know, get in the water and get more acclimatised. But for events where you don't wear the time trial starts, then that, I found is very useful for me to not, and I'm not somebody who worries about swimming, but sometimes when you get that cold water shock and there's people around you and you're starting a race, it, it is a bit much sometimes. Yeah, one, one thing I've started doing, it was more of a lockdown thing that I did was these cold water showers, but I've continued that habit on now for three or four years. And um, I do that throughout the year. Um, you know, I know that the water in my house has got down to about five or six degrees, so it's pretty chilly. Um, but also, what I, and, and there's nothing more, you know, about it, about being putting it on Facebook or Instagram or anything. It's just a, it's just a challenge I set myself. But what I did notice was when I started open water swimming again at the beginning of each season, um, the shock from that cold water wasn't nearly as bad as it used to be. You know, it's almost maybe I've learned to take a deep breath and instead of going, <gasps> um, it's more of, right, okay, take a deep breath and then slowly submerge yourself in. And as you do that, you just breathe out and be really calm. And it's made a massive difference to me. Just And I'm comfortable swimming. You know, I like swimming. It's my favourite thing. I'm comfortable swimming in open water, so I don't normally get anxious, but cold water is a bit of a shock for everybody, particularly at the beginning of the year. So, you know, particularly for people that are doing outlaw half, for instance, um, you may not get much opportunity to swim in open water in in for very long if 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 we don't have any more warm weather. So um it's it's important to maybe try and expose yourself to that cold water in a different way. And certainly that whole practice in a wetsuit, which you should should get some of as well. You could maybe go to your local pool and um, and, and wear a wetsuit in there for some swimming because it is a different it's a different position, isn't it? Um, you know, with your legs higher and you feel like you're going faster. Yeah, your local ledge centre will probably let you wear a wetsuit. Like, there's not very often any rules around that, no. and I'd probably urge people to just be just be confident and walk in in a wetsuit and just act like it's completely normal. Uh, we're doing that. Make sure you wash it. We're doing- yeah, yeah. make sure you wash it if you have been in open water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, on to my actual favourite subject, not my fake favourite subject for swimming, the bike. A few questions around, and I know it's pretty common. What bike shall I use for this race? Do I need to have a time trial bike? Can I use a road bike? Should I use clip-on bars? What is the right mm. bike to use for the outlaw for? Um, you don't need a triathlon bike or a TT bike. You can use a road bike. You can use TT bars as long as they're the sort that are legal. And so, you know, these things can be updated with British Triathlon on a regular basis. So it's worth checking the regulations to make sure you've got the right sort of bars. Um, If you're going to use a road bike that you've put clip-on triathlon bars on, it's definitely worth getting a bike fit because the geometry of a road bike is such that you, you tend to sit a bit further back. The seat post is a slightly shallower angle, so you can sit further back when you're climbing. Time trial bikes tend to have a more vertical seat post and you tend to be sitting further forward. So the bike setup is slightly different. Um, so it is worth going to see somebody who knows what they're doing to get to get your tri bars or your aero bars fitted onto a road bike if that's what you choose to use. If you don't, then that's fine. You know, if if you can only afford to have one bike and buying a time trial bike or triathlon bike is going to limit the opportunity to use that bike, then it probably isn't a wise purchase. If you're one of those lucky folks who's got a bike for every day of the week, then maybe you do want to buy a triathlon bike. Um, they're definitely faster. They're definitely more. You'll definitely be more aerodynamic. Although I will say that if I had a pound for every person I saw who had a five grand bike who spent the whole course 
riding around with their hands on the bullhorns because their back hurt from being in the aero position. I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, and so, you know, if you are going to invest money in buying the bike, invest some time in yourself so that you can, A, get a good bike fit that you're comfortable on for the length of time you expect to be on the bike and B, that, that then once you've got that bike fit, you can actually stay in that position because you've got the mobility around you, your spine and your shoulders to be there comfortably. Otherwise, you're going to look like a... Um, yeah, you're going to look very awkward when you run and you're all kinked over. So hopefully that answers that one. Um, yeah. But yeah, don't worry if you, if a road bike's all you've got. With Who did we have one year? Um, did it on a BMX bike. Sid. Sid Sidovsky. Sid Sidovsky. Mm. Yeah, if you go on the Outlaw and official page and have a look for Sid Sidovsky, if you can't find the picture, I'm sure he'd be happy to show you and tell you his experience. He, he rode the Outlaw bike course on an adapted BMX bike. Absolutely amazing, incredible and foolhardy. I think he had long, a, a long seat post and that was about it, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was so long. It looked like it was in danger of fall, sort of bending all the time, didn't it? Yeah. 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 But, so, yeah. So, so, so I've done uh, Outlaw events on both, on a road bike with clip-on bars or just a road bike and time trial mm-hmm. bike. And exactly as you say, you'll probably be faster on a time trial bike, but only if you've done that training in that position. So I'd ride the bike mm. that you know you can ride for the length of time that the bike split is going to take you because otherwise, yeah. as you say, you just, you just sat, sat up in a position that isn't, that isn't as fast. Mm. And if you're not comfy and your back hurts and your shoulders hurt, there's a real risk that you don't get around that bike ride and you want to get to the end because we want to be able to run down that orange carpet and get the medal and t-shirt. So um, yeah, just make sure you're training on whatever it is you are planning to use on race day. But, I wouldn't shy away from a time trial bike. Of course, it is probably going to be faster if you can ride it. And you've anybody that's watching this now, Dan, if they watch the video, which we'll which we'll put up, and and um, they'll be able to see your lovely aero felt bike hanging on the wall behind you there. <laughs> yeah, but I've also used it. Uh, my first outlaw half was on a my first road bike with clip on bars, and I rode that. I think I think I rode two forty five that day early on like my triathlon career. Mm. Since then, I haven't taken a great deal of time off that. On, on other bikes maybe 20 minutes some 25 minutes like it's not it is a saving but it's not like it's oh you're hours and hours faster so i think aero road bikes nowadays are so good that providing you mm. in the right position they're probably just just as good there's a company called redshift that make a seat post that um it's like an adapter that goes on top of the seat post and you can move your saddle forward and back like it flips over for that exact mm-hmm. reason you can use clip, clip on bars on a road bike yeah that bike behind me needs a dust i think um so a bit more about bike training uh, people asking similar to the swim really people are asking do i need to ride the distance before the day you know how do i know i'm going to be able to get around it so is riding a 100 miles for example essential or um do i need to have a certain ftp or whatever you know how do i know i'm going to be ready for the bike ride yeah i won't worry about ftp so much because um as, as i mentioned earlier you probably aren't going to be anywhere near your ftp on race day um you probably do it's probably a good idea to know that you are comfortable being in the saddle for a, a decent amount of time. Of course, the body is an amazing thing and the mind's an amazing thing. So if all you've ever done is a three-hour ride and you've done that regularly and you go out to do the outlaw full, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for courage, determination and, and, and never give in attitude. But again, as with the swim, you'll approach the race with a great deal more confidence if you have done at least one long ride because just knowing what happens how your back feels how your bum feels you know how you how your shoulders feel as much as anything else 
Um, you'll probably have the fitness, but you'll be surprised about how other little things ache and get into your head. Um, there's lots of bike sportives out there at the moment. Um, so you could go on do one of those with your friends, you know, something that's 180 K. Um, remember that the outlaw full course, I don't know what the actual elevation is, but it's not very much. So sure. If you want to go and do the attack to Dales or uh, Fred Whitten, where there's several thousand meters of climbing, that will give you a big confidence boost and you'll probably be out there for 10 hours, but it's, um, always think that one of the important, um, tenets for training for an event is a specificity so riding on the flat actually whilst you might think it's easier it's not really because you're in the same position all day whereas when you're on a, ho- a course where you need to do some climbing you can get out of the saddle and change position it feels a little easier on your body yeah and i think the only thing i'd add to that is if you're worried about your bike comfort spending two minutes in transition applying some fresh chamois cream could pay dividends for you later on in that bike ride so think about what you're doing it's going to be a, a seven or eight hour ride in t1 think about right i'm going to run my bike for seven or eight hours now what do i do well that's a good point uh, and i'd also add to that that you know there'll, there'll probably be some questions about should i wear a tri suit or you know, can I get changed in transition? Yeah, it, it, comfort is probably the most important thing. If, you, if you're trying to wear a tri-suit and it's got a very thin pad and six hours on a saddle is going to be uncomfortable or you've decided to go down the I'm wearing Speedos route, which I did in my first full distance event and ended up with terrible chafing on my inner thighs. Um, you know, um, think, think about your own comfort because if, if when you're riding, you've got 30 miles to go, your legs are tired and there's parts of your body that are aching because you tried to go for speed rather than around the comfort factor, you might regret it. So um, again, in those extra two minutes, you've, you've spent putting some um, Vaseline on or something, but put a pair of cycle shorts on. It, it, it won't make a huge amount of difference in the long run to your time. Certainly not in your first race. Yeah, I, I did an event in Bolton that isn't as good as the Outlaw Fall a few years ago, and I put bib shorts on over the top of my tri suit, mm-hmm. and it looked ridiculous, but it was so comfy. So do what is yeah. right for you. Don't worry about the image of it. If it works and gets you around the event, that, that's absolutely yeah. fine. Okay, so we've had a great swim and bike up to yet. We're now going on to the run. Yes. Um, people, are, people are asking, I've never run a marathon before. Is that mm-hmm. okay? Do I need to run one? Is that essential, do you think? Uh, well, I don't. I don't think it's essential. Again, as I've said, you can do a lot more on race day than you perhaps realise you are capable of. And um, particularly when you've got the adrenaline, all the other people, and every time you go around a lap, you've got the commentators calling your name out and telling you you've just got so far to go. Um, certainly in training before before you do your outlaw, you know, in the last few months that we've got left now, um there's always a risk that comes with running long as well. For a lot of people, if they haven't got great technique, when you get tired on that long run and you start to land badly after on each footstep, that could, that could be the start of an injury. Um, in, in training for most people, being out there to cover 26 miles is, is probably going to be, you know, it's a long day out. It's almost as long as their long bike ride. And so um, whilst you might gain some confidence that you covered the distance, if you can't cycle or run for the next week because your legs are sore, then... Um, what have you gained versus what have you lost um, so I, th- I think it's important to be I think it's more important on the running to be consistent with your running and not get injured you know because if you do too much or you go too fast and get injured usually running injuries are below the knee and when you've got an in- uh, an injury that's 
need some treatment, it usually means you can't do any running. So I, th- I think running consistency is most important. And I think the occasional long run is useful. But for most people, I don't program anything more than two to two and a half hours. And they've, they've generally built up to that over a, a long period of time. Okay, there's a couple of questions about walking during the run on race day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great what idea. Are your thoughts about, yeah, what are your thoughts about whether, you know, should you plan to walk or should you work, walk if you have to? Uh, what advice have you got for people around that? And I guess a common sort of marathon time in a full distance triathlon is probably, what, four hours to five and a half hours? Is that, uh, I suppose, most mm-hmm. people will do. I know there's people mm-hmm. either side of that. So if you're in that range, what should a run strategy look like? I absolutely think that a run-walk strategy that's planned from the moment you leave transition to is a brilliant idea for a lot of people. I know there are some running coaches. I, I've just done a podcast with Bobby McGee, um, very, very famous running coach. And there's also a guy called Jeff Galloway. Both of those are big fans of run-walk and they they have programs which encourage people to say run run for seven or eight minutes and then walk for two. And you can run with good technique for eight minutes. And then when you feel you're getting tired, you can walk briskly. And then run again and walk and run. It helps you to break the race down into those little chunks. Um, what what normally happens and what I see happening as a coach and as a, an announcer and also as a, as a fellow athlete, because I've done um, nearly 20, I think I've got done 19 full distance events, you know, in, in, in my life. So I've got a bit of experience myself of walking. Um, folks start off by thinking, right, I'm going to run the whole way. And then when they get to... 13, 15, 18 miles, they just haven't got the strength in the legs or, or their calf muscles are tightened up or the hips are tightened up. And so they're forced to walk. Um, and actually when that happens, because you're so fatigued, your actual time from the start of that run section to the end is way slower than if you planned at the beginning, right, I'm going to walk, I'm going to, I'm going to run six minutes and I'm going to walk too. Because you can recharge, you can recharge your brain, you can have a little bit of a gel of some water. And go off again so absolutely and there'll be some people who have been injured so walking's always an option there if you've got plenty of time you know then you can start doing the maths and work out how fast you have to cover the ground um so yeah i i don't i don't think you should um feel that walking is a failure you know i also know that there are some people who can run and walk their way to a sub three hour marathon if they do it properly so uh you know it's not just reserved for for slow folks and and often you'll see the pros doing this as well i think um uh i, I saw the the girl i know we don't like to talk about other events but the girl who won that big outlaw distance event in kona last year chelsea sodaro she walked through every aid station um you yeah. know she was running pretty fast in between but she walked through every aid station so she could get water and fuel on so you know that that is a run walk strategy of sorts and that was something she discussed with her coach as well so yeah, I like I like that idea, and for a lot of people, it's probably the best option. Yeah, I think as well, whether you want to or not, you're going to deteriorate <laughs> on that run. Twenty six miles is a long way. The best of times, never mind after what you've done earlier. So I I've always tried to okay, I'm going to run for the first ten k, and then I'll start walking the aid station so I can get. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the volunteers at the aid stations are brilliant, so they're going to help you out with fuel, fuel and mm-hmm. hydrating you but they're good for support as well. So if you're going to be running for 15 minutes in between aid stations, for example, that 30 seconds where you're running, walking through an aid station, walk through it, soak up the atmosphere, talk to the volunteers, high five the kids and that, and then use that as your strategy. And then further into the event, I might go on to something like, a, am going to yeah, run for eight minutes and walk for two. But 
plan for it to not go to plan. Have a when it really hurts, because at some point it's going to really hurt, and you're not going to want to do it, and you're going to hit the wall. I think people say just have some sort of strategy where okay, if I feel like I can't finish this thing, what I'm going to do is this, and I'm going to come up with some sort of thing just to keep you moving and to keep some running in there if possible. Plenty of people might walk a, a whole lot of their marathon, but if you want to get to the finish before I've demolished all the pizza and stuff, you, you're going to need to do some sort of walk. <laughs> <job. laughs> Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, start a whole can of worms, but do I need super shoes? Do I need some fancy frame, carbon plated, uh, elastic lace shoes? No. Thanks. I'll save my 300 quid then. No, I don't need to expand on that. No, if, if you think it's going <laughs> to help you, um, win the race maybe uh, for most other folks just get the basics right there's far there's far many mistakes you're going to make on race day that are going to override the benefits of expensive shoes yeah I love walking in alpha flies so <laughs> race <laughs> like floating on air exactly race day nutrition now there's a few questions about what exactly are at the A stations and these things are all covered in the event guides but what can I eat real food is one question. Or people asking about, can I rely on the food at the, you know, the aid stations? Do I know everything's going to be there? What would your advice be to somebody who is, because you can't carry everything you need for a full day like this is there. So what would your advice be to somebody about nutrition for, you know, for the outlaw full? Well, as you said, um, full details will be available near to the time. Um, uh, we might cover this in a little bit, but there, there will be a race briefing where, um, probably Ian Hamilton, race director, and probably Ella will be available to answer questions. And at that point, they'll have a very, very good knowledge of what they're going to be able to provide. Think things are changing every year because we had to we had to make so many changes because of COVID and COVID restrictions. What we could and couldn't have, you know, um, was very restricted. And as those uh, fading into the distance in our past, we're able to to offer different things. But the, the race day nutrition on the bike will be high five always is. Um, again the specifics will be in the race briefing but you generally find that they've got um, the electrolyte solution has got a coloured top and the normal water's got a clear top um, they've got gels um, I don't know what flavour they'll have um, there's, there'll be slightly more stuff available on the run aid stations um, you're quite right that, that it is difficult to carry your own nutrition around for the day but if you're not choosing to, if you choose to use high five, then you, you could probably, you should probably have some backup nutrition, but you could get stuff off the feed stations. If you want to use your own nutrition, then that you're comfortable with, then that's up to you. It's definitely worth on those days when you do those long rides, for instance, in practicing how you're going to carry it and how you're going to consume it and in what format you're going to consume it, whether it's a carbohydrate drink or it's a gel or it's um, an energy bar. One one thing I would stress, and this Ian and Ella will stress this in all of the race briefings, is that if you are seen to be littering, even if it's not uh, deliberate, and let's hope that nobody will be unkind or um, you know vile enough to throw litter around the course. But if you're seen dropping any litter, it is an offence that that carries a disqualification. So just just be mindful about how you carry your nutrition, so you're not leaving wrappers around. Because somebody that's associated with the event has to go and pick it all up and probably apologise to all of the locals whose um, roads we ride on. So we, we don't want yeah. to do that. Um, and we'd like to question about in, in the years to come. We do want, yes, we do. And and 
you'd be surprised about the, the compliments we get from people, but also the complaints. And it only takes one little thing for somebody to have their, have their day. Um, it, can you eat real food? Oh, yes, you can. And there are plenty of examples of real food. What, what, one thing I would say about our beer pond is that the crows love the food that people bring on race day. And uh, we have a fun time while the swim's taking place, watching the crows come down and help themselves to the goodies that people have left attached to their bikes. You know, they, they particularly love the bagels. Um, they, they, I've even, uh, we've even seen them flying off with um, gel, gel wrappers and pecking into them and getting a bit high on the sugary contents there. So um, be careful about how you leave it on your bike. Um, you know, if I've seen some people who've been very painstakingly applying energy bars to the top tube and then the crows just stand there and peck it all off. Yeah. So I think I think there are two people who have done every single outlaw event now. There were three last year. I think one person has dropped away. Graham and Gary. And Gary Goucher uh, lives very local to me. He's in my cycling club. Mm. I know him really well. And he, he one thing he taught me about triathlon is about fueling. And we were in Mallorca one year and he taught me a malt loaf trick that he still uses to this day where he will slice up a malt loaf and then just stick it to his top tube <laughs> with, mm. the, with the, like, you know, the wet slices. And of course, crows all like that, but he, he stands by that. So yeah, um, I think at every aid station, you're going to have something sweet, something savory, and then your classic energy product. So you will always yeah. normally come across Jaffa cakes, jelly babies, bananas, maybe some tortilla chips. Yeah, maybe not, maybe not on the, maybe not on the bike. I think you do, you'll more no, like to get that on the run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's definitely, you know, the race briefings are worth attending. There's one before each race. You'll get a chance to ask questions um, by typing them into the chat box and um, they'll all be answered. And yeah, make sure you go to the race briefing because there's nothing worse for any of us that are involved with the organisation or the presentation of the race to see somebody asking a question on on a, a, a for an internet forum and then lots of answers coming in the majority of which are wrong because it just adds more confusion and um, you, you know if it's your first event you definitely don't want to be feeling a bit confused and, and lost when you come to race day yeah brilliant okay we've got a few questions about lead into race day and a few more about the race day so mm. you've said you need you need to come to the race briefing are we having in-person briefings this year do you know i don't think so i think i think um uh it takes up a lot of time and uh you know, at, at all of the events, we end up having three or four briefings. So it takes up the whole afternoon. Um, I think the the online briefings before each race have worked really well. But but as I say, I, I'm not organising the race, so that may change. So as far as I'm aware at the moment, no, but, um, you know, don't take my word for it. Keep Just keep, stay tuned and um, you will get an email from Adam or Ian or Steve Paley informing you exactly what's going on before each race. Just need to be sure where I'm picking up my can of free Erdinger from. That's all. Um, it just came to me about uh, nutrition. Outlaw emailed out a couple of days ago a link where you could get some high five products. They were worth ten or twelve pounds. You only oh, pay right. the postage. Okay. Or it's like a mix pack of some of the carb mix, some of the chews, some mm. of whatever else they do, a gel or something like that. Get on that. It's only a couple of quid. You can test what it, what they use on race day beforehand. If you get on with it, great, and you know you can use it. But if you don't get on with it, then you know that you need to think outside the box and, and get some of the stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure yeah, if you fire them a message, then I'm sure we'll send it to you. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a good reminder, Dan. Nice one. Well done. I've, I've got a keen eye for things that are free. So, I mean, you see, you should know that. I think this, pub, I was going to say, I'm, I'm surprised you must have Yorkshire, um, Yorkshire heritage somewhere. Brilliant. Okay. 
back to racing. What is a taper and what does it include? I see people talking about it and, and saying they're doing it. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, you talk to a hundred coaches and they'll give you a hundred different tapers. So it depends on the person. It depends on how long your race is. For, for an outlaw full event, you probably want to start your taper a bit earlier, further out from the race, maybe three to four weeks. You know, I know people like to train hard but as close as they can to the race, but there's a danger over doing it. And I think the the pros and the, the experts will say it's always better on, on a race like this to be slightly underdone than overcooked. Um, on a half, you could probably leave seven to 10 days, but um, also think think about the, the taper generally is you reduce the volume. If you're used to training twice a day, keep doing that because that's sort of probably in your schedule and keep a little bit of intensity in there. With about seven days to go, you're not going to get any fitter because right? your body just doesn't respond to fitness that quickly. So um, you're really trying to get rid of all the fatigue you've got and just keep keep things ticking over. That said, if when you've reduced the amount of training you do, you then fit that in uh, more work, thinking, well, I've got an opportunity to get all that work done before I go away for a few days, you know, then the mental side of working hard or traveling around to do more things can in itself cause stress. So the ideal taper, you, you reduce the, the volume, keep the intensity and frequency the same, but also give yourself a stress-free week, travel to the event early. You know, I mean, last year we had somebody say, I won't be able to get to the outlaw full on Sunday until Sunday morning. Can I wrap my bike? And it's like, you've known about this for weeks and weeks and weeks. We don't have special options for people. You know, you have to rack the day before and, you know, that's when you have to register and do all of those other little bits of admin. So, Keep the stress low. And then there's always some debate, but I always think that if, if you eat a lot of vegetables, don't re, don't re, remove all vegetables from your diet. But I think we all understand that vegetables are what keep us regular. And so if you're going to have a nervous tummy on race day, eat lots of vegetables in a few days before probably isn't going to help that. So you could just, just for a couple of days, you could cut back on those and maybe eat some starchy white pasta to help with your carbo loading. Um, but that, that's, you know, it doesn't need to be that technical. Just just back off the training, freshen up a little bit, and um, just try not to eat things that are going to give you more of an upset tummy. Yeah, there's a couple of questions about nerves as well. I think that I think that adds into it. Mm-hmm. When you start doing things differently, it makes you nervous, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm changing what mm-hmm. I'm eating. I'm changing my training. Mm-hmm. So I know I certainly try and reduce that. Have you got any advice for anybody who is dealing with general race day nerves? So either in the hours before the start, or even you know, if you say right, your taper for your race starts today if that immediately makes them nervous what sort of of coping mechanisms you can suggest or anything like that well uh, the first thing to understand is that everybody gets nervous right up to the you know the people who are going to win the race pros going to the olympics and as soon as and and that's in any sport everybody gets nervous and nerves are a good thing because they help to focus you a little bit if you're a bit relaxed and lackadaisical about stuff, that's when you forget. You turn up a bit late. You forget your bike. You forget your wheels. You know, you you just you know, something's missing. Um, so, and, and as soon as you the gun goes and you get into the water, those nerves will disappear. So it's it happens to everybody, and it is temporary. Um, I always used to like to have a a script of what I was going to do in in race week. You know, what what training I wanted to do, when I wanted to eat, uh, and writing that down having a little timetable meant I could think right okay it's Wednesday now what do I need to do today okay I need to go for a swim right then I need to I'm going to get my hair cut right so just make sure I get there then I'm I'm going to 
I'm going to pack my bags tonight, so I'm going to make that list and pack my bags, and then just focus on all of those things, and then and then have a little script of how I, how I expected the race to go. You know, like what am I going to do walking down to the water? When am I going to get my wetsuit on? Where am I going to position myself? And see yourself doing the event, and try and think about all the things that you've done in training and how you're going to put them all into practice on race day. Um, that helps. You know, if meditation works for you, or breathing, or just sort of going for a walk with the dog, then then do that. Um, but I would also say if you're going to do if you're going to do any races before the Outlaw Full, so if you're going to do Outlaw Half or Outlaw Hulk, these are all opportunities to for dress rehearsals for um, for those things. So time to practice nutrition, time to practice open water swimming, time to practice that strategy um, on on the you know that run walk strategy. And anxiety is usually caused by a lack of preparation. So when you've done the preparation, you um, you can feel more confident, but if you don't get any nerves, I'd be I'd be more nervous. I think it shows you care about it, doesn't it? If you're getting nervous about it, yeah. you know it's because you put you put work in and you prepared for it, and, you, and it means a lot to mm-hmm. you. You've probably got some friends or family coming to watch you. Or you've told everybody you know that you're doing a full distance triathlon. You want to be able to say, "I did it the next week." So I get it. Yeah, and I, I still get nervous. I've been doing this years. Yeah, and I say a lot of people have been posting on Strava and Instagram about they're doing this big race, you know, they're putting all the motivational things up. They've been training for it for six months. It's, it's understandable that now you've been telling everybody about this now, the pressure's coming to bear, and, um, you know, but it's also exciting as well because you're going you're gonna to achieve something that you didn't think you could do and find out actually how much how much more you're capable of. Yeah, so swimming related race day where and when do you get put your wetsuit on and what do you wear underneath it this might be a bit of a personal question simon please don't scare us with your answer um <laughs> well in a race um, do, do you need do you need to wear a suit can you wear other things what's the what's the deal well we do have change tents so that's one thing i would say we do have change tents and so you can change there we don't allow nudity and transition and we do like you to go through the change tents in the full, in the halves. Um, I think you could probably still take your little bag. It's a limited size bag and put all your stuff next to your bike. There haven't been change tents for the last couple of years. Again, see what happens and what they say in the race briefing. At the full, there's a change tent for males and females and they're separated. So there's a little bit more privacy. Um I would wear something under your wetsuit. I, I remember Mike Riley telling me about uh, another outlaw distance race at this um, at Lake Placid. He was commentating. This guy came out, the Japanese guy, came came out, probably pulled his wetsuit off uh, at all these other previous races, did the same, and then realised he didn't have anything on underneath it and had to sort of like run to transition, covering himself up as best he could. So, um, yeah, it's probably best to wear something underneath it. I usually racing a tri-suit and so I'd wear my tri-suit underneath uh, my wetsuit um, but if you are wearing cycle shorts um, you might not want to swim in those because the, the the bib will get all you know and the um, uh, the chamois will get all soggy so you might not want that discomfort um, so you can just put a swimsuit on and then get changed and dry off in, in transition and take your time you know as long as you as long as you're well within the cutoff you're welcome to take your time and believe me some people do yeah and that's something else to test at any open water swim sessions is where the things mm. you're going to wear like put a tri suit on under your wetsuit I, I see a lot of people will unzip their tri suit and, and like take it off the top half of the body and have that one not on mm. the wetsuit 
I find I can't do that because it's too much of a faff trying to get your tri suit mm-hmm. over your wet arms and a bit too small for me anyway, so I can't get it on. So it's like I leave it on, but I have it unzipped, and that seems to work for me. But test what you what what works for you. Some people wear speedos. I did um, uh, through my work. I was in the elite transition area, the Leeds WTCS race a couple of years ago, and I noticed that all the athletes there were wearing speedos under their tri suits. And I asked a couple of them why that was without trying to be too weird. Some of it was comfort, some was aesthetics, but some of it was like performance. So there's a range of reasons why somebody would wear something specific and they just got to get what's right for you. Um, yeah, most things come back to find what works for you, I think. Should we say something about if anybody's got any other questions, like where should they? Because there mm. is the Outlaw Facebook group that it is on. It's not unofficial, isn't it? It's not run by Outlaw. Yeah, I mean, we've got an official Outlaw page as well. You can post stuff on there. We've got an Instagram mm-hmm. We've got an Instagram page. We'll put all of these in the show notes. Of course, you could you could write directly to me as an official Outlaw coach. You could probably write to Dan, and Dan could either try and answer them for you and give you his knowledge, or, or Dan and I could answer them jointly between us. Um, we, we could even do another podcast near the race for all those last-minute questions like, I've not, I've not done any big rides and I've got a week to go. What shall I do? That sort of stuff. Um. Can I can I sell my place to my next door neighbour because I don't want to do it anymore? I'm too nervous. Yeah, so I think we've given a, a good overview there, Simon. So thank you very much for that. As you say, happy for, for anybody to fire any questions at either of us. I'm probably most active message-wise on Instagram. I'm hey with three Ys DW. Beware though, you will get a voice note back because um I can't, my fingers are tired from typing too much. So I tend to subject people mm. to my voice. Happy to talk mm. all things outlaw. As I said, there's a couple of Facebook groups as the uh, the official one. I think there, there is an unofficial one as well, which, which has a lot of people who do outlaw in there. Uh, so, yep. yeah, feel free to fire away. And um, Simon will put his email address in the show notes. <laughs> Please direct all the complicated ones to him. Yeah, I will do. And um, we'll, we'll get from Helen, we'll get all of the other social media stuff that, that you need to do. And, and no doubt we'll, we, we, might do, we might do either another webinar or another one of these. Now, maybe we'll do a live one if there's a request for it, hey? Oh my God, the pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, fine. yeah. Okay. Well, look, Dan, it's been great. Um, thank you for thank you for coming on and helping me on this. It's been uh, it's been really good to have a chat like that. Actually, I think it might work better than a webinar in terms of getting that information across. And I look forward to seeing you out. Which which events are you doing this year on the Outlaw Islander? Uh, so, thank you very much for having me. Thanks to everybody who submitted any questions. Look forward to seeing everybody who's doing Outlaw events at the Outlaw events. I am doing, I'm going to cross some fingers and touch some wood. I'm going to do all of them, but you know, I know the best intentions and all that. However, I am in a relay team in the fall because it's a long old way, that, isn't it? Ah, relays are great. I think they're brilliant. I think it's a great way for people to get into the events and it's a lot of fun, um, particularly when I'd usually choose to do the swim, but so particularly when you know that you can do your bit and go and have breakfast. But listen, again, Dan, thanks very much for being here. Listeners, I hope you've appreciated and have questions answered that are on your mind. If not, as Dan said, there's plenty of opportunities for you to drop us a line and get those answered. Um, I look forward to seeing you, young man, um, at the start line on all those events. And for the rest of your listeners, I look forward to seeing you at the start and the finish with the rest of the announcing team. So until then, you will be an outlaw. Thanks very much. Thank you again to Dan for joining me on the show and acting as a host this week and we look forward to seeing him at some of those outdoor events in the future weeks you can find a lot of links to discussion topics in the show notes below 
And to make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click subscribe. And if you enjoyed this particular show, while you're there, please could you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really do appreciate it and you'll find the link for that in the show notes below. Now earlier on I mentioned about our membership program, so if you'd allow me a couple of minutes just to explain what that is in case you're interested in joining. As a member you'll get access to a growing library of training plans for endurance events covering triathlon of course, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, etc, grand fondo cycle races, ultra trail runs, marathons, as well as more focused plans to help you build mobility and strength and boosting specific aspects of your fitness like functional threshold power for the bike or critical swim speed in the pool. We have monthly workshops that are exclusive to SWAT members and we have free access to some educational workshops which we're putting on on subjects such as nutrition, sleep, strength and many more. We also have a growing range of partner products where we offer discounts on those and these are products that I use myself and that I believe in and for which I do not get paid to promote. So if you'd like to learn more and access these member only benefits please look out for the link to my website simonward.co.uk and click on the work with me button. You can also find a link in the show notes below. You'll also find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and you can look for me as The Triathlon Coach or Just Triathlon Coach. So that's all for this week. If you've got any questions related to anything we discussed, please drop me an email, simon at triathloncoach.com. But if not, then I hope you have a good week and I will see you on the next episode.